Most of you have probably seen the movie, but in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Principal Rooney has a famous line that many of us have probably heard or used this phrase before. After Bueller calls in for another sick day, after already taking nine sick days so far that school year, Principal Rooney later says, I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. And based on Bueller's record, the principal is quite right, isn't he? Right? I mean, there really isn't to be a whole lot of trust for Bueller in the way that he's been acting in school or lack of attending school. But it raises a question that many of us deal with. How much does it take for us to trust someone? Some people trust too easily. Right? And end up getting hurt quite quickly. Other people put up walls that it takes years for someone to break down and earn their trust. But it's the same question in regard to Jesus that we see in the passage today. How much does it take to believe in Jesus? At the end of John chapter 10, we see two groups of people being described. One group is the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and it seems like they will never have enough to turn to Jesus. No matter how much he says, no matter how much he displays himself to them, their unbelief is so stubborn that they never have enough. But then at the end of the chapter, Jesus comes to another crowd who had a much less witness than the Jerusalem crowd. They didn't have all that Jesus had said and done in Jerusalem. Instead, they had the word of John the Baptist. No signs done by John the Baptist, just his words. But many of them end up believing in Jesus. So how much does it take to believe in Jesus? Let's read our passage this morning. It's John chapter 10. I'm going to pick up in verse 30, which we did cover last week, but just so you remember the context a little bit. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. Everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. 
So as I said, John creates this clear distinction between the two crowds that Jesus interacts with. Right? He spends most of his time still at that feast of dedication in Jerusalem describing these Jewish people who are living in unbelief. And here Jesus exposes their continued unbelief and presents to them multiple reasons for why they should believe, but they still don't. So that brings us to our first point. Really just kind of two main points here you'll see on your handout that's in the bulletin with some subpoints. But the first main one is those in unbelief never have enough to turn to Jesus. Apart from God working in the hearts of these people, they're going to continue in their unbelief no matter what proof is laid in front of them. But that doesn't mean that this interaction between them and Jesus is meaningless, but what we see here is there's some features of their unbelief that arise as Jesus converses with them. The reason why no amount of proof to them could ever be enough is revealed in this dialogue. First, we see some reasons why. One, we see these unbelievers operate with self-authority. The witness that Jesus presents them with will never convince them because they don't place any authority on Jesus. Instead, the authority is on themselves. They are the ones who get to determine what's true and what's not. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus has been doing a multitude of works, all of them in the name of the Father. He has healed the sick, he has cast out demons, he's walked on water, he's calmed the storms, he's given an endless supply of food and wine on different occasions, and all of these But even in the midst of all these miraculous works, the Jews still call Jesus a blasphemer. And they want, him, they want to stone him for it. And the Jews say it's not because of the works that Jesus has done, although we could consider that a lie, because we've seen in the past, right, that they want to stone Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. But they say it's not because of the works here, at least, Here they say it's for the words that Jesus has spoken. That he has claimed that he and the Father are one. And this concept of Jesus, a man standing before them, that this man would claim any sort of equality with God is blasphemous. But it's only blasphemy if it's not true. Which brings us to the point here. These Jews have now placed themselves as the authority as to whether Jesus is telling the truth or not. It's no longer that they look back at God's word that they have of the Old Testament and say, well, does this line up? Is this possible that that someone could come in the name of the Father and claim equality with the Father? There's no searching the scriptures here. There's no, what does God say about this? Instead, it's the way we've understood that is the authority. And what they've decided is that the Messiah needs to be a political figure who's going to lead their military in victory over Rome. 
Any man who claims to be the Messiah that doesn't fit that idea must be a liar. He must be a blasphemer. And Jesus is not just claiming to be that Messiah, but Jesus is now claiming to be equal with God. So he's blaspheming. What's happened here is these people's personal opinions have escalated to take the place of the truth of God's word. Catch that. Their personal opinions have escalated to be the writing authority rather than the truth of God's word. And church, I think we need to be careful of the same problem in our current situation in our lives right now. I'm going to be careful here because I know I'm treading difficult territory. I'm not taking one side or the other, so please don't hear that. But I want to warn us of what seems to be a very divisive issue I've already seen in church members, not just in our church, but in churches across the nation. If you are more concerned with someone else's vaccination status than you are about their eternal status, you've missed it. You've placed your personal opinion over the truth of what Jesus says. If you've been paying attention at all, at all for the last year of our series in the Gospel of John, you've realized Jesus always, always takes earthly things like a temple, like water, like bread, and turns it to eternal matters. He talks about eternal life. He talks about never being hungry or thirsty again. He talks about never being snatched from his hand. Now hear me out. I'm not saying you're not allowed to have an opinion. That's not what I'm saying. But the moment, both sides here, church, the moment we begin to look at the unvaccinated like lepers and we begin to look at the vaccinated like socialists is the moment we've forgotten Jesus. And if you know this is a problem for you, maybe you need to turn off the TV. Maybe you need to stop reading articles that only agree with you. And for some of you, just go ahead and delete your Facebooks. I truly believe that if Jesus was present during this pandemic, he would care more about how many people have heard the gospel than about how many people are vaccinated or not. He would care about how many have heard the gospel rather than who you voted for in the last election. He would care more about who heard the gospel than he would care about who you're blaming for Afghanistan right now. To live out of self-authority is to live in unbelief. And we see the results for those who live with this mentality. Those who operate with self-authority end up, point, second sub-point here, they end up interpreting with great inconsistency. Because they have themselves in the place of authority, they don't interpret Jesus' words in a consistent manner. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? So Jesus makes a reference here back to an Old Testament passage. Psalm 82, verse 6, actually, to be exact. Now, in that passage, it's debated. 
God is talking here. God, God refers to a group of people. It's debated whether it's Israel or whether it's a group of judges within Israel. But he calls them gods, little g, gods. And so some people read this and they think, well, that must mean that we can become divine, right? That God is calling us gods, but it's not. In fact, if you look at that passage, it's actually an indictment of these people. Look at Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So here's the point. While they're called little g gods, he says, you are going to still face death. God himself doesn't ever face death. God himself never dies. So he's clearly saying here there's a difference between the little g gods of what are referred to here. It's just a term that's used to describe this specific group of people, whether it's Israel or judges, who are operating at an authoritative level somewhere in society. So in that sense, they're acting on behalf of or like God in the sense that they're operating with authority over this specific area of life. So Jesus grabs this. He grabs this to make his point, and we see his point here in verse 36, well, 34 through 36. But he says, if God can call human beings gods, little g gods, then how can you accuse me of blasphemy by saying I'm the son of God? If God himself can say little g gods about human beings, if I say son of God, which seems to be a lesser term than even saying little g gods, somehow you're still saying I'm committing blasphemy. But then he adds here, he says, but I'm even greater than just a mere human being, right? He says, the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. Jesus is the one that's been set apart by God and has been sent into the world. So Jesus is greater than any human being, right? Because we know Jesus isn't just a mere human being. So Jesus is greater than those in Psalm 82, but he's claiming a term that seems to be less than those in Psalm 82, yet these people are still saying that he's committing blasphemy, but they never accuse God of committing blasphemy back in Psalm 82. So they're inconsistent. They're inconsistent with God's word. They're inconsistent with Jesus' own words. But he goes on even further to say, you're not just inconsistent with the words, you're inconsistent with my works. Look at verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Even if they don't want to believe Jesus' words, his works are still at least displaying what is quite clear, that he is working in alignment with the Father. So he says here, even if you don't want to believe my words, Believe the works, right? At least let that be a starting point that maybe you'll eventually realize that my words are also true, right? The words of Jesus saying that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, but their answer is still no. Their unbelief makes them content to live and interpret things inconsistently. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy for saying he's the son of God. 
but they never accuse God of blasphemy for calling a human being a little g God. And again, may this be a caution to us. As we look at ourselves, as we look at the world around us, there are tons, tons of people who are willing to agree with some of what Jesus says. But few who are willing to take all of what Jesus says. People will latch on to phrases that say, don't judge, love your neighbor, take care of the poor. But we're going to leave aside those ideas of sin, of eternal wrath for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, or the idea of being willing to pick up your cross and possibly give your life for following Jesus. We don't get to customize our Christianity like a new car or like some personalized home decor you put up in your house where you can oh I'll take that but I'm not going to deal with that to sprinkle a little of this but not too much of it if you find yourself upset with anything that Jesus ever says or anything scripture says the problem's not with Jesus or the scripture the problem's with you and we see that at the end of this portion of the passage Due to their self-authority, these believers function, last point here in the subpoints, function with hostility. For anyone to even present an idea to them that might cause their personal opinions to collapse means they must eliminate that person. We already saw it at the beginning, right, in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus proves to them all of their inconsistency, everything that they're viewing wrong, interpreting wrongly, and look at how they still respond in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. So may that be a reminder to us again this morning, that if you read scripture and you're trying to figure out, when you read a verse, and you're trying to figure out how can I make it that this verse doesn't apply to me, that's unbelief. Some of you may still be sitting there upset with me about bringing up the vaccine issue. But I didn't state an opinion on one side or the other. All I said was Jesus would care more about who you're sharing the gospel with than that. If you're frustrated by that, take a look again on whether you're really in the faith or not. You've missed Jesus if you think he doesn't care more about someone's eternal status. And as we get to the end of the passage, we see a clear distinction between those Jews he just dealt with in Jerusalem and when he comes across to the other side of the Jordan, to the people who had been baptized by John the Baptist. So we come to the second group and we see your second main point show up here. Those of true faith humbly receive all of Jesus by the witness of the word. Completely contrary to the arrogance and the inconsistency of the unbelievers in Jerusalem, this group doesn't elevate themselves to the authority, but submits themselves to Jesus by the witness of the words that they heard from John the Baptist. Witness of the words, not by works. So let's take a few moments here and look at how wide the gap is between the unbelief in Jerusalem and those with true faith on the other side of the Jordan. First, those of true faith operate with humility. While the Jews placed themselves as the authority, these people heard the witness of John the Baptist, and now they're hearing Jesus himself, and they're willing to submit themselves to it. 
Right? Look at verse 41. That's where we're going to camp out most of this whole point. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. All of their faith is based on the words of another person. John the Baptist and now Jesus. They didn't say, well, John the Baptist taught something that really doesn't fit with our interpretation, so we can just go ahead and ignore him. Nor did they say, Jesus, you're claiming to be equal with God. You must be a blasphemer. They're not dismissing either one of them. Instead, they're saying, you know what? Maybe our minds and our hearts are the things that need to be changed. Maybe we need clarification given to us. Our hearts need to be aligned with Jesus, not we need to make Jesus align with us. And let's be honest here, being corrected for all of us goes against human nature. We don't like it. Kids cry when you do it to them, don't they? Trust me, I know. But you know what? We as adults fight back too. We just do it in more sophisticated ways, more passive-aggressive type of ways. But in order to follow Jesus, you have to realize your life is only headed to destruction if you don't have him. Humility is necessary to realize, first, that you're headed in the wrong direction, and second, to realize you can't get yourself in the right direction without Jesus. But true humility requires us to take all of Jesus, not just the pieces that sound good to us. While the group of unbelievers were inconsistent with Jesus' words and his works, this crowd of true faith interprets, your second sub-point here, interprets all or nothing. Notice an important word here in verse 41 that we could easily glance over. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Everything that John said was true. And we've already seen some of what John the Baptist said in the Gospel of John, but let me summarize some out of the Gospel of John and some from other Gospels. What, what we hear from John the Baptist, this is not an exhaustive list, but let me just give you an idea of what John the Baptist has said. He said, Upon the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and everyone must repent. Everyone must turn away from their sin." He said that every tree in the end that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said that his joy is completed by Jesus. And he said that Jesus must increase while he himself must decrease. And here in chapter 10, we have John the disciple, the writer of the gospel, saying, True faith agrees with all of that. Repentance, judgment, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the need to have the Holy Spirit, having full joy in Jesus, and having a mindset of less of me and more of Jesus. All of that is what true faith looks like. And it must be all of it, not some of it. And we must take that mentality not just with what John the Baptist said, but with all of what Scripture says. It's all or nothing. For any of you who have ever bought a car or a house, one of the scariest phrases you can see when you go to buy it is, 
selling as is, right? Some people see that phrase and they're gone already, right? I mean, I'm not even looking at it. I'm not even touching it, right? Because to us, we assume there's something wrong with it, right? Because as is means you have to take the good and the bad. We have to take Jesus as is. And I'm not saying that Jesus has some bad stuff about him that you have to take along. It's just stuff that you yourself might not like. We can't just say, well, I don't like that. I'm just going to leave it aside. You take him as is. But it's not that he's flawed. That's the beauty here of Jesus. To take Jesus as is is not a warning with Jesus like it is with a car or house. It's a promise with Jesus. Because it means believing in Jesus really is as good as he says it is. And in our final point here, we see that all of it is based on what he says. Those of true faith function based on the truth of the word. Did you catch the massive difference in this whole passage between the Jews in Jerusalem and the believers across the Jordan? One group has the words and the works of Jesus, and they still are in unbelief. The other doesn't have Jesus' works, just now is receiving Jesus' words. All they had was a witness to Jesus of John the Baptist, and they still believe. Verse 41 here makes a point. John the disciple makes a point here of what these people say. John did no sign. And yet these people have still concluded that everything John said about Jesus is true. They weren't asking for Jesus, what sign are you going to do to prove yourself to us like the other Jewish people have done? Verse 42, they heard the truth of the word about Jesus and many believed in him there. I hope this is a reminder to us of the importance of the word of the gospel of Jesus that's supposed to be spoken to us and to the world around us. Last year sometime, I was speaking with some people from a different church. And their conclusion was, our community might see revival if we could just get miracles and signs and wonders to be done in our area. You know, that it happened back in the early 1900s with all of this revival and all these miracles being done. If we could just get that to happen here, we might see revival of people. The miracles are somehow necessary in order to get people to believe. May this passage, these verses, be a reminder to us that unbelief that asks for works will continue in unbelief. True faith believes the truth of the word. So brothers and sisters, how much is it going to take for you? Some of you may be listening and you're still convinced that it needs to be on your own terms, by your own self-authority. Somehow you have to make Jesus fit into your personal opinions or else you're not really going to believe in him. And if that's the case, you're always going to be inconsistent with how you handle scripture. You're going to twist it to agree with whatever your own views are. And as long as that's true, you will be angry and harsh towards anyone who views it differently. If that's you this morning, understand this, that's a life of unbelief. 
you don't really believe in Jesus. You don't really follow him. You don't really understand what it means to believe in him. But my prayer is that many of us sitting here are in the other camp. The camp that we see at the end of the passage. The camp that has true faith that realizes we must approach Jesus with humility. Knowing we don't get to twist him around, but he needs to change us around. And we do this with an all or nothing approach. That you have to take all of Jesus or you get none of him. All of what we see about him in scripture must be called true. And not just called true, but followed as truth. If we are to be people of true faith. So which life are you going to choose this morning, church? Are you going to choose a life that makes Jesus fit your own views? Are you going to live a life that really lays down your own views with the desire that Jesus might increase and you might decrease? Let's pray together. Father, may we desperately understand how much we need to change. That any time something arises in us that we see in your word or we hear in your word that doesn't fit with what we want, may we realize the problem is us. May we realize that Jesus is perfect, that he is your son, that he is God in the flesh, come to us to take our sin and to give us new life. Father, may we never allow ourselves to continue to place ourselves as the authority. May we each day wake up put our own selves aside and say today Christ must increase every day every hour may that be true of us that we want to see Jesus made known that we want to see you receive the glory none of it based on ourselves help us father Change our hearts that we might desire these things and pursue them in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.